Good morning. If you have your Bibles and you better open them up to Nehemiah chapter 7. Let me, let me set the text up in this way. How many of you stay to watch the credits after a movie in the movie theater? You just sit still, keep eating your popcorn. Okay, okay, never mind. Put your hands back down. Before Marvel, how many of you stayed? Before Marvel, did anybody stay to watch all the credits of the thousand? There are like, okay, there are like eight of you. You, you probably have a 4.0 GPA and you read the footnotes and... So before Marvel, I will confess to you that I, I rarely ever did this. I did have one PhD professor, Russ Bush, who, who encouraged me. He said, sit and watch how many people it takes to put together that two hours of entertainment just one time, just to sit and look at how many people. And I did. And then I was like, yeah, this is a waste of my time. I don't, I don't know these people. I mean, they were all names. There's like a hundred names on the screen that held a microphone or a, a camera or a boom mic or did something with sound. And then there they go. And they're off. And that's... That was probably six months to a year of their life, and I spent two hours enjoying all of their work, all of those people's work. So until Marvel came up with the extra scene, out the theater I went. Often that's what happens when we encounter a chapter like Nehemiah chapter 7. We're reading in our quiet time, and we get to this list of people, and there's this laundry list of people, this laundry list of numbers and it's the credits, and it's roll the credits, and it's last piece of popcorn, and out of the chair, and off we go. Even if we're committed to reading the whole Bible. So because we're committed to reading the whole Bible, and we believe all of God's word is inspired, infallible, and errant, we read it, but even as we read the words into our mind, our minds are thinking about 18 other things. It's, we're, in, we're in a different world. So I had the joy this morning of preaching through a list of all of these names. You'll be excited to know I'm not going to read them all to you. But I do think we should stop, look and see what's in Nehemiah chapter 7, take it to heart, and then we'll move on to Nehemiah chapter 8. So here's the main idea of the text. I, I thought about a different title, but I just went with simple, trusted. God is faithful, you can trust him. Because you have to ask yourself the question, why in a book that often discusses huge events in a verse or two, why did Nehemiah use all of the space in chapter seven? Chapter seven, starting, starting in verse six, going all the way through to, to like verse 69. He talks about all of these different people. Why? The list is very similar already in Ezra chapter two. So if your English teacher were grading your paper, they would circle this and mark redundant material delete. So then we better take note and ask ourselves the question, okay, if it's in Ezra 2, almost the exact same list, just a few changes, and it's again in Nehemiah chapter 7, why is it there? We'll get to that point. In our text today, as we walk through it, I'm going to break it down into three separate sections. We're going to look at delegation, and then we're going to look at registration, and then we're going to look at the contribution. So delegation, registration, and contribution. Now I want to read the first four and part of verse five to you as we begin to start walking through this, and then we'll look at delegation, registration, contribution. Nehemiah chapter seven, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Now, when the wall had been built, 
So all the opposition overcome, the task is finally complete. Here we go, chapter seven. The wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Lord, as we come to this text, God, there are times that we just gloss over your word. There are times that we don't understand. There are times, Lord, when our hearts themselves are cold or distant. There are times, Lord, where we don't understand. And so, Lord, help us just to catch a glimpse of your faithfulness. Help our faith to be encouraged and increase and that we might trust you. And may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. All right, so we walk through the text. As we walk through this text, first we're going to see delegation in verses 1 through 4. Delegation. He says here, the wall had been built, gates were set up, gatekeepers, singers, Levites. So then in verse 2, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. Now, some commentaries, when you look at this, will say that's the same person restated in two different ways. I don't think that's the best interpretation because verse 3, it says, I said to them, plural, I think it's two different people. I think he put in charge his brother and then he put in charge Hananiah, the governor of the castle, in charge. Now, why did he put them in charge? What are the characteristics he looked for? It tells us here. It says that he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So there's good application for us. You want to have an assignment? You want to be used? You want somebody to pick you to be in a, a certain position? You want God to use you to do certain things in this life? Well, here are two great characteristics we should all strive for. He was more faithful and God-fearing than many. The first word there, faithful. What does it mean? According to Merriam-Webster, it means steadfast in affection or allegiance. It's a good thing for us to be when it comes to God. Steadfast in my affection and in my allegiance to God. Loyal. I'm not going to betray. I'm not going to turn and run. Firm in adherence to promises or in observance of duty. You want somebody to put you in a particular spot? You want a company to hire you? You want to have a vocation? You want other people to trust you? Faithful. These are the things that are my assignments that I'm supposed to do. These are the things that I will do. So how are you going to be faithful one day? It's by being faithful today. So today, what are your assignments? Well, that's easy. Because all of your faculty members give you a syllabus. And in that syllabus, it tells you what your reading assignments are and what your writing assignments are and where your quizzes are and all of the work that you have to do. And so if you want to develop a characteristic pattern in your life of being someone who is trusted, be trusted right now. 
Be trusted with the small things. When that reading comes up and you don't wanna do it, you just wanna skip over it, are you gonna be a faithful person that does what you're supposed to do? Or are you gonna cut the corner? Are you somebody that can be trusted? Are you gonna cut an edge and cheat? That's an online class, nobody will ever know. Nobody likes the class anyway. Why do I have to know this information? Do I really need to learn all this stuff? Are you gonna be faithful? We develop habits of life. These habits of life affect us down the road. So if we cut corners, if we cheat, if we're unreliable now, and we develop a habit of being that way, oh, and it's no big deal now, then in the future, is it gonna be a big deal? Well, it may be a big deal now and in the future. So here faithful, not just faithful, but God-fearing. What does God-fearing mean? You understand this, we've, we've talked about this before. When I fear God, there's a reverential awe. It's not that I'm just afraid of him because he's mean. He, he's, a, he's my father, but he is an eminent father who is present and he is a transcendent God who is the creator. And there is a reverential awe when I come to God. I come to God in a humility. I come to God looking to him, knowing that he already knows all, he already sees all. I can't get away with anything. So as I come to God, it's in reverence of his greatness and of my awfulness. And so because of that, then I wanna do what God says do. When I truly am recognizing and living within the fear of God, I wanna live my life in light of the fact that God sees everything. So when nobody else is looking, I'm still gonna be faithful because God is always looking. Not a legalistic, in trouble, you're gonna get grounded, you're gonna get whatever. But in a loving way, of this is the God that gave me life. This is the God that redeemed me from my rebellion against him. This is the God that sent his son to die on the cross. I have a reverential respect of that God. So God-fearing. Those are the two characteristics. And then he gave clear directions. Now this is a manual in how to lead well. He hired well, faithful and God-fearing. And then he gives clear directions. And in those clear directions, you will see that he's looking around at the situation and he is realistically analyzing the situation, seeing where the threats are, saying, here are some possibilities. Let's make sure we minimize these possibilities. So what's the threat right now? Well, they have rebuilt the walls. So the walls are up, the gates are set, we're safe. No, not really, because there's not a whole lot of people living within the city now. It's really big and we can't watch all the walls. So we've got to put people up to watch the walls. And then he says to them here, don't open the gates till the sun is hot. Open late when there are people around and close early. Lock the doors while there are still people watching the gates. He has analyzed the threat and he gave clear directions. Here's what I want you to do, he said, verse three. Don't open the gates until the sun is hot and while the still standing guard close and shut and bar the doors. And then appoint guards from among the inhabitants, the people who live here, the people who care most, put some at a guard post, put some in front of their own homes. What do we tend to watch best? It's something we care the most about. So put them guard in front of their own homes. Good wisdom here. How did he analyze the situation realistically? The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. No houses had been rebuilt. And we understand here there were some houses there because when it talked about who worked on the wall, people worked out across from their houses, but all of the houses that perhaps had been destroyed, they hadn't been rebuilt in this particular time. So here we see that he identified realistic dangers. It was Genghis Khan who reportedly said, the strength of a wall depends on the courage of those who defend it. 
I don't know if he ever said that or not. I don't know if he actually bribed people either. But apparently people were bribed as gatekeepers of the Great Wall of China. And the wall is only as good as the people who defend it, their integrity. So again, we're back to faithful and God-fearing. So he delegated these roles. He couldn't be everywhere. He was a leader who had authority. He said, I'm delegating some of this authority. There's a good principle. Who do I delegate it to? People I can trust. They are faithful and they are God-fearing. And then I give clear directions. And then I tell them what I want them to do. And then I'm done. And they will take care of it. We move to point number two. Point number two is registration. Verses five through 69. We're not gonna read through the list of names. Number one, it would be embarrassing for me to try to pronounce all of the names. Number two, it would take about five minutes. So let me point these things out to you. In verse five, it says, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. So first off, you're wondering, wait a second, what's the difference between David? When he did a census and the Lord condemned him for it, it's right here. God put it in my heart. But even more than that, there's a practical principle for all of us in living life and how we live life to recognize that there are times God puts things in our hearts. We should be walking with God in such a way, we should be in God's word in such a way, we should be praying and allowing God to speak to us. Part of why we pray is so that we'll actually have a moment when we're quiet, when we don't have the earbuds in, where music's not playing, where we're not talking, where we're not voicing things, where we are quiet and we're allowing God to speak to us. And sometimes those still quiet moments, God will put things in our hearts. Now, I don't mean he speaks to me audibly, I don't hear God out loud say things. I don't know that I even hear God in a, in a nonverbal voice say things, but it's almost like the Lord is just putting something on your heart. You need to do this. Sometimes in my life, it's a conviction of sin. You need to go apologize to so-and-so because you were rude in this, in this instance. Sometimes it's you need to stop doing this because this is becoming an idol in your life. Here, most recently, it was Civilization Six. I bought Civilization Six for Samuel. I don't know why. And then I sat down one night and I told my wife I was gonna play for 30 minutes and three hours later, I'm still playing. I'm like, oh Lord, this is bad. I used to love Civilization. I don't think I can handle it right now. It's just not, not gonna happen. God puts things on your heart. Don't do that. God puts things on your heart. Do that. You should do this. You should lead in this way. You should serve in this way. I encourage you and challenge you to walk with God long enough and close enough that you can sense when God is placing things on your heart. If you haven't sensed that, maybe here's a better way. The next time you have a big question and this big question is looming in your mind, the first place you should go is to the word or to prayer, to ask God, God, put on my heart what you want me to do. Because our tendency is, at least early on in our faith, our tendency is go to somebody else. Somebody else who's closer to God than I am, you tell me what I'm supposed to do. But God may not put it on their heart what you're supposed to do because God wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with that other person for their life, but not for your life. They're not gonna be your go-between. You don't need a go-between. Christ has torn down the veil. You have direct access to God. Learn to walk with God in such a way that you can sense and feel and know what God wants you to do and then have the faith to step out and do it whether it's repentance, whether it's an action, whatever it may be. That's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for my children is that we will be close enough to God to know what he wants us to do and then we will have the faith to follow him. 
with reckless abandon and pursuit and trust of what God is doing. So he put it on his heart. And then it says, I found the book of the genealogy. Now, I thought this was interesting because it's not like he just stumbled across it. Typically, when you find something, you go searching for it. There's work that is required to finding something. I found the answers to my homework assignment. You didn't just stumble over them in chucks. If you did, we call that cheating because then you copied them off somebody else's paper, right? You, you go do research and you find the answers. He did research. He did work. And he found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first. This list has a few differences, very minor, from Ezra chapter 2. Some people will take this list and they'll take Ezra 2 and they'll say, look, see, this, the Bible can't be infallible, inspired, and errant because these lists are slightly different. There are reasons that those lists could be different. It could be an updated list from Ezra's older list. It could be they counted people in different categories. It could be they added the births or deaths of some who actually made it versus those who just left from Babylon. It could be potential copying errors. That's why I'm thankful for people who deal in textual research. People that we have on our faculty here like Mike Shepard and Randy McKinnon who can work in the original languages, look at this, talk to why this is a slightly different than what this is, how that all came about. This is what they do. And God may call some of you to do that as well. You better be really good at the original languages and enjoy it if this is what God's calling you to do. So why is this here? I think this is a critical genealogical, genealogical archive. When we move to the New Testament and we see all of the list of names, those list of names are documenting that Jesus, the Messiah King, came from the tribe of Judah. It's documenting that Abraham's promise to be a great nation has traveled all throughout. And what we see in Ezra and what we see in Nehemiah is we see the link put back together that there is a God and that that God keeps his promises. I'll come back to that. We also see here, skipping down to verse 61 and verse 64. Verse 61, it says, there were those who came up but they could not prove their father's house nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. In verse 64, it says, these sought the registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Now, here is a good application point for us because the text has told us in the Old Testament that you have to be from the tribe of Levi, you have to be that in order to be a priest. They couldn't prove where they were from, so they were excluded. Can you imagine the conversations that could have happened here? Oh, but look, Nehemiah, this is really not a big deal. Come on, I love the Lord. I, I, I want to be in the priesthood. It, it's not a big deal. But God's word said it, and they were implementing God's word. And because God's word said it and they couldn't prove their genealogies, you're excluded. Can you imagine how well that conversation went with the people that were excluded? That had to be a hard thing to do. And yet here, that's what we see. Verse 65, it says, the governor told them they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise or that they could cast lots for it. Continues on here and we look at a third point, contribution. Verses 70 through 73. It says, now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. Not all, but some said the governor gave to the work. The governor gave a lot to the work. Some of the heads of the father's houses, they gave to the work also. And then it says, and the rest of the people, they gave to the work. The people who were going to benefit from the work gave to the work to support the work. 
This is not a local church. This is not a message on tithing. But I will say to you, be generous people that support the work of God and the ministries of God and the church of God. You should be tithers. Any money that you earn, you should tithe. The Bible gives us promises that you can't outgive God. You go study those promises. You should be a generous people. We should all be a generous people. And here we see that those who had more gave more. Those who didn't have as much, they gave less. But together, they all gave some. They were contributing to the work. They were generous. And then we see here in verse 73 that it mentions the priest, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. It started out this way. It ends this way. It mentions to us the singers. Many of you are very talented in music. You'll want to note that it has 18 references to singers in the book of Nehemiah. It has eight references to giving thanks to the Lord here in Nehemiah. There may not have been a lot of singing when they were in exile, but when they were brought back together, they wanted the singers to be in place to lead them in worship, to lead them in the opportunity to give thanks to God for everything that he was doing. All right, so what's the big idea here? Why Ezra 2? Why Nehemiah 7? Do you know that Daniel 6.10 says that Daniel prayed three times a day towards Jerusalem? towards Jerusalem, probably because in the dedication of the temple, Solomon's prayer in that dedication had said, God, when, not if, but when you exile our people, may they pray towards this place, may you forgive their sin, may you restore them to their land. Daniel, knowing his Bible, prayed towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day. He did it even if it was gonna cost him. Jeremiah chapter 29, I have for you on the screen. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare." For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. Now take note, there were prophets and diviners who were saying things that were wrong. How do we know if the things that people say, thus saith the Lord, are wrong? We better know his word and know whether it matches up with his word because we still have people out there who are declaring things that are wrong. Verse nine, it says, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are complete for Babylon, when your 70 years of captivity is over, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The book of Jeremiah continues on in chapter 46 and verse 27 and 28. It says, but fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob will return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But of you, I will not make a full end. 
I will discipline you in just measure and by no means will I leave you unpunished. In your life and in my life, we need to know that God keeps his promises. We need to know that God promises and God delivers. And God delivers more accurately and more reliably than Amazon Prime. (laughs) What has God promised? He promised Abraham that his offspring would become a nation. God delivered. God promised the slaves in Egypt deliverance. God delivered. God promised David someone to sit on the throne. God has and will continue to deliver. Daniel prayed morning, noon, and evening for 70 years to bring his people home. God delivered. God promised that Israel would not be wiped out. They would return to the land. In our text today, we see that God delivered. This is a text that's not so much about counting all of the people as knowing that to God, the people counted. It's a text that tells us the common, everyday person like you and like me. The normal people of life matter to God because God made a promise to Israel and he gives us the names of all of the various people. He gives us the numbers of all of those people and he says, I promised I would bring you back, I brought you back. And here's the list that proves it. God promised he would destroy Babylon. God delivered. God promised a Messiah. Jesus came. God has delivered. God promised us that he would deliver us from our sins. Jesus died a substitutionary death on the cross, went to a grave, got up three days later, resurrected, and is coming again. God will deliver. God has promised us salvation if we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is our great hope. It is not in our works. It is not as who we know. It is that God will deliver again. God delivers on his promises. And I have only mentioned a few. You may not need it now, but there will be moments in life as you go through that you really need to cling to the fact that God delivers on his promises. You will really need to grab a hold of and cling to the fact that God is faithful and that you can trust him. We had one of those moments in our household over Christmas. Joy's niece, Taylor Martin. This is an old picture of of Joy and Taylor. She was born May 28th, 1997. She passed away Christmas morning, December 25th, this past year. She passed away from the results of a heroin addiction in the hospital, 22 years old. Same age as many of you. Fortunately, earlier this year, Joy had the opportunity to share with her in the hospital, to be able to share the gospel with her, to be able to to tell her how she could be saved with tears flowing down her eyes, even as she had a trach in and could not speak. With tears flowing down her eyes, she nodded that she had prayed the prayer to receive Christ. She never overcame her heroin addiction. But our great hope going through all of this as a family is the hope of the gospel. And that if she meant that prayer that she prayed in a hospital, that now she has no heroin addiction, that she is with her Savior, that all is well. And that is all of our great hope. And there are going to be moments in your life when you're dealing with a parent with Alzheimer's or when you're dealing with a tragedy in the family or when you're dealing with addiction, that your great hope is that God is faithful and that you can trust him. It's that God hears our prayers and God answers our prayers and that God has made promises that one day he will come again and he will make all 
all things new and he will set all things that are wrong with this world right with this world. And if you can't cling to that hope now, you will not be able to handle the hard times of life, the difficult days with loved ones in the hospital wondering, God, why? God, what's going on? These are the promises. The list of people in Nehemiah 7 tells us that God is faithful and when he promises something, he delivers on it. And in your deepest, darkest days, in those moments where you think in your soul, God, are you really there? The Bible screams, yes, he is there. And we can trust him. You may or may not need that word this morning. But I guarantee you, if you live long enough, you're gonna need that word in life. And on those dark days, He's faithful. And on those days when you think, nobody loves me, there's a God that loves you. And on those days when you think, I just don't want to be here anymore, there's a God that loved you so much he sent his son to die on a cross for your sin, to redeem you, to save you, to adopt you, to love you. We don't often understand. But he gave us his word. And he gave us his promises. And they will come true. God is faithful. You can trust him. Dear Lord, we are so fickle. We are so unfaithful. We are so quick to think about ourselves. We are so quick to doubt you. So God, give us faith. God, help our unbelief, even as we are a believing people, to know that your word is sure, that you are true and that you are faithful and that what you have to promise, you will deliver on. God, may these words ring true as we replace the lies of the evil one, the father of lies, when he tells us that we're worthless or that we have no meaning, that we have no purpose, that there is no hope. God, allow us to replace those lies with the truth of your word, that you are faithful and that we can trust you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you are dismissed.